Thank you. Thank you so much, Cecilia. It is so wonderful to be here. I have to say that poem, I am just sitting in it right now. That was so powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, hello to everyone. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation to be here. Um, the Open Table Kansas City is a community that I love from afar. Um, There's so many good things that I hear coming out of this community that I admire so deeply. And um, so I'm just glad to be here in the midst of beautiful people who are looking to do um, beautiful things in a world that is often really ugly. And um, and so thanks once again, I'm excited also to be here to share about this hero and this saint that most of us in the West probably know nothing about. And I'll be honest, um, I grew up here and um, I didn't know much about her until very recently. And so uh, I come to you not as an expert, but just as someone who's kind of co-learning and really excited about sharing something that I'm learning about. Um, it's kind of like when you learn about like a new food or a new restaurant, you're like, you gotta try this. And that's kind of how I'm approaching this today. And so, um, just a little bit of a further introduction. I, I am in San Diego um, and we have this beautiful seven-year-old new worshiping community called Anchor City. Um, and we, my partner and I, Daniel, we have a 17-year-old daughter that we are just fiercely proud of and we are getting ready to let go because she's heading off for college in the fall. Um, I identify as a third culture kid. Our church is, as um, Cecilia noted, what we call a third culture community. And if you're unfamiliar with the term, basically third culture refers to a, a people or a person who grew up in a culture other than their parents. Um, and so our church is mostly Asian American. I am Korean American and um, it's mostly Asian Americans who grew up here in the States, although that isn't all of us. And so um, this, this is my, one of the pastor's souls that was gifted to the two of us. And I just wanted to note that this is of, um, Korean, this is like a Korean silk cloth that they used to make um, uh, hanbok, which is uh, our, our, you know, the clothes, our people's clothes. I don't know how, um, how else to put it. So that's what it is. And, and um, I just bring it to you as a piece of who I am. Um, now growing up third culture can be a little bit difficult because you're often made to feel like you don't have a place where you fully belong. Um, I remember being in elementary school and a group of boys surrounding me to call me names having to do with my ethnicity and being told to go back home. Um, I remember times of feeling othered and at times feeling even terrorized because someone told me I didn't belong here, I wasn't American, I wasn't American enough. Um, but at the same time, I remember visiting my grandmother in Korea and she would be like, the Americans are here and feeling really confused. And I'd say to her, Grandma, I, I, I'm Korean. But then as she said that, maybe realizing that I wasn't. Um, most of us third culture kids, we are often told that we're neither this nor that. And so um, perhaps for longer than others might, I have had to explore the idea of identity and of who I am. And that's where my Christian faith has been really helpful and grounding. I find my identity primarily as God's beloved child. And from there, I can think about my other identities as well. You know, um, third culture people were often put in a liminal, liminal, like in between space, right? Like in this, like kind of like um, space where there is nothing and no one else, maybe. But um, in this liminal, in between space, Christ meets me, and affirms me, affirms who I am, and transforms the negative, neither this nor that, uh, to become blessed, to become both and and to show me that there is a beauty in diversity and in the cultural identities that have shaped my sense of self, 
And part of that has been learning in the stories of who I am and who I can be through the saints who have gone before me. And so that brings us to you, Kwan Soon. And I'm just going to throw up here. Um, I'm going to share this with you now. I can. All right, there we go. Okay. Um, I want to take a moment to note two things here. One is minor and one is a, a, a less minor. But the first thing about her is her name, her family name. Um, so her name is Yu Kwansun, but her family name, that is her last name is Yu and her first name is Kwansun. But it, her name is stylized in the Eastern order of last name first. And so, um, uh -oh. sorry. Oh, no. I've lost the ability to advance. Oh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Um, so this is um, a picture of her that I chose because to me, as I was thinking about saints, she's not like actually sainted, of course, in the Catholic tradition, but um, to me, it kind of reminded me of an icon. Um, and so I wanted to share this picture with you. Um, of her. She's often depicted in this way, holding a Korean flag. And so this brings me actually to the second thing, which I wanted to note today, which is that I want to acknowledge that particularly in light of things that happened last week, depictions of people waving flags in hand um, can be triggering or at least disheartening. And so I chose to share about Yu Soon a while ago, but I found myself a little conflicted and a little bit angry for many reasons, but one of them being that now I had to really think about how I was going to share about patriotism today. Um, and so here it is, but here she is, and um, she's described as a patriotic martyr. And, and, and I think about that, and I think maybe that's part of the difficulty and the challenge of being a third culture person. In one culture, patriotism or the love of one's country is still seen as positive because it's a way to celebrate identity that was given to us by God, though some may have tried to take that away from us, right? On the other hand, I see uh, firsthand the dangers of when a supposed love of country is actually a love of power and, and how that plays out in our country today. One final thing to note is, um, also, that there has been a movement in recent ways to present history, right, um, to debunk um, some of the false mythologies that surround them, or to present um, historical figures as flawed, and to make them more human. And the same is true of Yu Kuan Sun. Um, because of her short life and because of the time in which she lived, history and myth lived together in her. And so um, using mostly English sources, um, it's been hard to put together some things about her life. But I think imperfect saints are better than perfect ones anyway, because it allows us to believe even more so that all of us, that you and I, that we are all historically significant when we stand on the side of justice and truth and beauty and goodness. So I present her not as the perfect saint whose legendary stories make her all the more admirable, but rather as a simple and bright and courageous young woman who found the strength to stand up to evil and injustice. Now, Yu Wensun was born in 1902, just before the beginning of what is called the Japanese Forced Occupation of Korea, which began in 1905 and was formalized in 1910. There are a couple of events that led up to this, and so I'm going to just give you a little history lesson. Um, there are a couple of things that led up to this, including acts of intimidation by Japan and um, the death of the king and the assassination of the queen. 
Um, and there was a lot of political intrigue, but complicit in this was the United States via the Taft-Katsura Agreement of 1905. This Taft-Katsura Agreement between the United States and Japan was a somewhat secret pact, granting each other the recognition where the U.S. would annex the Philippines and Japan would annex Korea. So because of that, in 1910, the annexation of Korea became formalized and the Japanese came and occupied the country. Now, Japanese occupation was cruel and unfair. Japanese people came to take over much of the land and took it from the Koreans who were instead often forced into compulsory labor. Women were even uh, more harshly treated. And for many of them, they were victims of sexual violence. And so you might hear actually about stories of comfort women during this time of occupation. Uh, much of the crop that Korea produced, Korea has always been a very rich country in terms of the soil. And all of that crop was sent back to Japan to feed the Japanese and it left the Korean people hungry. Eventually the Japanese decided that the best way to truly occupy Korea was to erase Korean culture and language and heritage. And so they forced everyone to speak Japanese. They forced everyone to change their names and live as cultural Japanese. Although Koreans would never be truly accepted as Japanese people. It was just a way to erase Korean identity and to leave them in this liminal in-between space. Now, Yu Hwansun was the daughter of Christian parents. Christianity was beginning to spread in Korea at the time, but still was less than 3% of the population. Although it wasn't a large percentage of the population, Christians made up a good portion of those independence fighters out of the 33 that came forth with the Declaration of Independence. More than half of them were Christians. And this included Yu Hwansun's family. Her father built a school in her hometown and he had the reputation of finding a way to independence through social reform, particularly through education, including women. So there isn't much about her um, upbringing, but anecdotally and, and perhaps legendarily, she was known to be preternaturally bright and kind. We do know for certain that she was bright enough to be urged to study further at Ihua Women's School, which was a missionary school um, set up in the capital. And the stories that surround her there are of her willingness to uh, sacrifice on behalf of others, of her kindness to others, including those that were less fortunate than she was. Now, as I mentioned, the family were active Christians and many times it was in churches that the independence movement of Korea was being furthered. Uh, in some ways, it brings to mind the independence and civil rights movements of Black Americans that sprung forth from churches here in the United States. And I didn't know this. As a Korean American, I didn't realize that there was that kind of tie. Um, and so this was really exciting for me to learn. It was with this kind of background that Yu Kwan-soon went to Ihua University in the capital of Seoul to study. And there she participated in what is called the Samir movement. Um, is just three rising. It's the Tamil movement or the Tamil uprising. On March 1st, 1919, the first act of organized resistance um, from the Korean people against the Japanese colonial government happened. And so she, along with several other classmates, climbed over the walls of her school because they were not given permission to go. And they participated in what was supposed to be a peaceful, nonviolent demonstration that turned violent when the Japanese soldiers could not control the crowd. Several days later, there was another demonstration that she participated in and she was arrested. Her release was negotiated by Western missionaries of her school. And so the schools then were closed. And Yu Wansun went back to her hometown, smuggling with her a copy of the Declaration of Independence drafted by Korean independence fighters. 
And she shared that along with Korean flags, uh, uh, urging her neighbors to participate in movement for independence. Uh, that was March 1st. On April 1st, in the marketplace of her hometown, there was another demonstration. And it was there that her father and mother, along with 17 other demonstrators, were killed. Her father is said to have been killed when he challenged the Japanese police, saying, we are here to express ourselves in peace. Why are you violently killing innocent people? As he said that, the Japanese um, first shot him and then um, shot his wife. That's Yu Hansun's mother and father. In the aftermath, she was arrested, um, but because she refused uh, to give um, any kind of information or to admit guilt, she was uh, given a tougher sentence. She was uh, offered to be given a lighter sentence if she would give all this information away, but she said no. And so then she was sent to prison where she endured harsh torture and punishment. Um, this is a picture of her prison re registration card at Sodemun Prison. Um, she, as I mentioned, she received a longer sentence because of her resistance and because she would not admit guilt. Um, she instead echoed the words of her father when they said, admit your guilt, you're a criminal. She said, why am I a criminal? I did what was right to reclaim my country. How is that a sin? But why do you use violence to kill innocent people? Why, when we have come to demonstrate peacefully, do you shoot at us? If anyone is a criminal here, it is you who have come unlawfully and stolen this land from the rightful people. Liberty is given to us from heaven. You cannot take that from us. Because she said words like this, she was given a long, cruel sentence. In prison, she, along with others, then organized a protest on the one-year anniversary of the Samir movement for which she was put into isolation into a little tiny box where she couldn't stand up and she was tortured and eventually she died in September of 1920. I don't wanna leave this um, image of her prison card up so I'll leave this one up instead. I'll put this slide up of her. This is the statue of Yu Kwan-soon that is displayed at the school she attended. And I just love this depiction of her. She stands strong and she's determined. And she's barefoot and open-armed and she, but she's ready to peacefully fight. Um, we call Yu Kwan-soon in Korea, we call her Yu Kwan-soon Yol-sa. It's a, it's a title. And what it means is martyr, but it means that she was a martyr without ever holding arms, that she was a peaceful um, martyr without ever holding weapons. And so that's the title, honorific title that she's given. Uh, there aren't many things recorded about her as life as a person of faith, but then again, I think uh, there are many times when we don't do things to blow our own, I'm a Christian horn, right? Like do, 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 but we do it as a natural expression of belovedness by God. We know, as I mentioned, that she was raised in the church. In the written records of what she said, there is a sense of biblical hope that justice will one day prevail and that the colonists do not have the final say. So it reminds me of this quote by this theologian N.T. Wright in his book, Broken Signposts. Oops. Oh no, I'm struggling with my, here we go. The hope the Christian faith offers is the knowledge that God will not allow injustice to be the last word. That was the hope that was in the, the hearts of all of these freedom fighters. Now I see also in her a willingness to sacrifice for the common good, for liberty, that her actions will reverberate throughout history. The Christian leaders of the independence movement had the same. Um, it was, they live for the people, 
they die for the Lord. They were ready to go to the end for this cause and on behalf of others and to commit themselves to God should their time come during this endeavor. And because often meetings were taking places in churches, the Japanese colonial government burned and destroyed churches and lay harsher sentences on Christians. So in prison, Yu Kwansun writes this prayer with the realization that her time might be near. She prays for justice, that this will become the happy country of the people. And then she prays and asks for the Lord to be with her and to give her strength. And I want to note here that she was only 17 years old at the time of her death. And I'm not trying to glorify her death or her martyrdom, and um, certainly not because she was martyred at such a young age. In fact, in light of this week's insurrection on Capitol Hill, with symbols and words of Christian faith being misused, along with the flag waving, I really want to tread lightly here, because I myself feel so disheartened and angry. You know, those people call themselves patriots without understanding anything of what it means to really be proud of one's country or nationality. And misconstruing nationality is an integral part of faith, right? They call themselves patriots because they use force and violence and lies to hold on to perceived power. But Yu Kwan-soon and other Korean patriots fought to regain their identity and to establish a, that dignity in themselves and each other and in their country and in their culture. They waved flags in an act of defiance against oppression and violence and injustice and the erasure of their, of their identity, not out of angry entitlement. And so I grieve, in fact, that because of this, I fear that true followers, followers of Christ in America won't do the work of understanding the national identity to be a blessing, to understand what it means to be an American, not as a patriotic Christian identity, but as the identity of belonging to a space and a place and a culture, and as a people of hope to really become a nation of liberty and justice for all. Um, having said that, you know, I bring up Yu Hansun's age because it is important to me because of two different reasons. I mentioned I have a 17-year-old daughter who is looking for stories of strength and courage that are a part of her heritage, people who are a part of her history that she can aspire to be like, to have strength and courage and conviction. My daughter often wants to stand up for what she knows is right to stand up against injustice and wrongdoing, and so to give her examples of young women in whom she can see herself is a huge gift. And I also think about my own 17-year-old self. As a young person growing up in a certain kind of church, there were many good things I learned and experienced, of course, but there were certain other things that were never nurtured and even squashed. I had a very strong sense of justice, and I felt like my faith was calling for me to live standing for justice and with the oppressed and the hungry and the materially and spiritually poor. But I was taught that that wasn't what a Christian was supposed to do. We're supposed to save souls and sometimes feed the poor, but with conditions, right? Like you have to come and do this and that, and then you can eat, right? But working for liberation or heck, even believing that Jesus came to liberate us from anything but our personal sins and eternity in hell was considered bad theology at best distracting, and at worst, evil and misguiding people away from heaven. That's what I was taught. Jesus wasn't concerned with the things of this world, right? That's what I was told. So I, I didn't understand. I didn't know that I had a history of faith as important as Moses and Peter that was missing to me, that people of faith had fight in them, had courage in them, had conviction to stand against tyranny and oppression, to be freedom fighters who affirmed my God-given identity as a person of Korean heritage when it was being lost. 
Yu Hwansung is part of my story. And although you might not be Korean, and although it might sound cheesy, as followers of Christ, it is part of your story too, because now I'm sharing it with you. We are tied together into the stories of one another, and we are richer for it. We should tell these stories that will tie us together to strengthen us, to affirm each other, to spur us on to do what is good and what is right. So I want to share a Bible verse with you, and then I'd like to start to get into breakout rooms. Um, this is what it says. Take care and watch yourselves closely so as neither to forget the things that your eyes have seen nor to let them slip from your mind all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. That's Deuteronomy chapter four, verse nine. I wonder for all of you gathered here, what are your stories? The things that you should not forget, but instead should teach that would affirm and love and give strength and courage and contribute to an affirmation of your God-given identity, of your sense of self. Are they stories about yourself or stories of others that might become lost if you didn't tell them, right? Stories that you would tell your children and your children's children. Well, the invitation that God gives us is to tell them. So in breakout rooms, I wanna invite you to share. Um, this first one's short, right? Share something from your culture. This can be anything, a food, a story, a person, a place. Um, if you're having a hard time thinking about your culture because maybe you identify with the dominant culture and it's just the water that you swim in, I invite you to think about your microculture, your state, your city, your neighborhood, your family, right? I invite this kind of sharing to share in culture with one another. And then I invite you to share a story about someone you uh, about someone you want to pass on to someone else. It can even be your own story. I bet many of us have these stories from even this past year of courage and conviction and of, of affirmation and love. Um, that and maybe the story will fill in the missing history for someone else. Um, so that's what I, I love to do. Um, maybe give a couple minutes for my fellow introverts to think about it before they have to go and share with those in breakout rooms. Um, but yeah, um, I uh, want to go ahead and do that. Reverend Jaya, I am like having a moment. <laughs> like there, there is some like things deeply stirring just from you sharing that story so I just want to I just want to say thank you for that first of all but I just like I am I am overwhelmed with lots of things right now so all good but like wow thank you thank you thanks for sharing that um I love what you said Dea about um, how you've shared the story with us and it is our collective stories. Um, and I wrote down the, the stories that tie us together. Um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. And I, I think if I'm thinking about, you know, this first question that you have, share something from your culture, this can be anything. Um, I think I'm originally from Texas oh. and um I've always loved spicy foods. And I think my mom, my mom has told this story like 9 million times. I feel like it's a story she always tells people whenever she gets to meet my friends. Um, that like one of the first things I ever ate, like besides like baby food 
was like chips and queso and hot sauce and salsa. Like she like put a chip in salsa and then another chip in queso and like let it like get soft and then so like my like baby mouth could could consume it. And I just think Tex Mex food of of chips and queso and chips and hot sauce and salsa. Um yeah, yeah. So coming from Texas, West Texas too. Um Tex Mex. <laughs> Yeah. So good. I love that that food is so often an entryway into like shared culture, you know, like living here in the States, like, you know, queso, like chips and salsa, that's so familiar, right? Mm -hmm. You think, Abby? Yeah, yeah. I know. Even when I moved to the Midwest, I was like struggling to find places that had like what I would describe as Tex-Mex food. I still don't know if I have fully found it yet, but it's okay. Um, man, Maddie, that was like a really, I love what you shared. Um, nothing is coming to mind. Honestly, like this feels like a heavy question. The first question, because, mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about like, I'm, I'm just beginning to grieve what like whiteness kind of strips, um, mm -hmm. all of us from like culture and stories in this way. And I'm thinking like, you know, I have a German and an Irish background and so there's like the superficial things, like the stereotypical things that come up, like Germans drink beer or something and, and Irish also drink beer. I think that's, that's really my, my culture that I come from. But like, um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of work to study Celtic culture and go a little bit further back and, and learn some of this like beautiful spirituality and some of the roots of like Celtic Christianity that resonate deeply with me. So that's that's something that comes up. And then that second question, I think Jaya, what I really appreciated you offering um, about your saints is that, you know, she, like not everything is saintly in the sense, like the stereotypical sense of it. And I think about my grandmothers in particular and how meaningful they are to me, but the older I get and the deeper I get into anti-racism work, the more stuff I see that I'm like, that, ugh, that's wrong. Like I can't, I can't like embrace some, some rough stuff, you know, from their past that, you know, that I'm inheriting. Um, but I'm thinking like, um, I, I love the way you situated that because I, I love these women and they're strong women and what I can hold is their full story and recognize um, the holy aspects and recognize the things that aren't holy and the things that I don't want to carry forth. Um, and that's like a really huge gift. Like I, and I think it honors them and my family, but there's a lot of work there. You know, there's a lot of unpacking to do. So those are some swirling things. So good. Thanks, Sarah. What I've been uh, reflecting on lately is um, just trying to find things that are specifically Africans or from African-American culture since much of what I know has been our foods, right? But like knowing that a lot of wherever uh, my lineage of originated from, it's really hard to pinpoint and to know that like we don't, I don't have a language and these things that um, other cultures have. So figuring out, uh, discovering again what some of those things are as far as I can do that, knowing that, so for me, like really leaning into um, Kwanzaa, really leaning into um, saints and ancestors, um, and as someone who 
you know, grew up in a very evangelical church. Um, saints and ancestors are sort of a, a taboo sort of topic to talk about in church. Uh, and yet I find the idea of knowing um, the saints uh, or the great cloud of witnesses is with me, um, even if I don't know who they are entirely. That's so good. Thanks so much. I, I just want to say thank you to the two of you for sharing so openly about the pain that comes from like processing some of this, because um, there is like, I do think like a feeling of like this loss of not knowing fully like a background culture, which is another reason why I really um, lament what is going on right now with white supremacists feel like making that the American culture and like holding on to it because actually America has a beautiful, rich culture also full of pain that we have to hold together that we should be able to identify and say, yeah, like this is, this is the part, the American part of me. Um, and also there's a heritage part of me as well. That's kind of being robbed of us and um, not kind of like that is that really, that's what makes me um, part of what makes me feel angry as a third culture person. Like I saw in the chat that the, you know, the black experience in America is very similar to this third culture sense, even though you have been here for so much longer and there it like, all of this should be contributing to us having a rich diversity of culture that contributes to how all of us are not like, not that we all get to be these things, but that we get to all share these things. And um, yeah, and so I just wanna um, name, I guess the lament that I hear in like having to do that hard work of going back into and trying to figure out like, what is my culture and what have what has been lost to me? Does that make, does that make sense, you know? I was just thinking about um, the answer to, to question two, share a story of someone you want to pass on to some someone else. Um, and so just thinking about like from my family, um, I've been doing a lot of just researching my history and trying to find, you know, where, where people were or came from or what, what my heritage is. But finding really interesting things that like one of my great, great grandmas on my dad's side was born on a Mississippi river boat. And so whenever she had to fill out where she was born, she put, she was born at sea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Cause that's like what you would say, even though uh, it wasn't the sea, it was a river, but I, I just think that's really fun. And then on my mom's side, there's always been a story of, my great grandma taking her vows to be a Catholic nun and then meeting my great grandpa and then running away <laughs> and her getting married. And I just love stories like that from like my family that I can put together and give to my daughter at some point, you know? So that's what I love right now. What I, what I'm really excited about finding and, and hearing and all those things. So good. That's a great story, by the way. It was, did you say your grandmother or your great grandmother? It would be my it would be my great great grandma on her side. That's that was, yeah. That's the story. So <laughs> it's funny often that when we ask about like tell about a saint, like it's so often grandmothers and great grandmothers whose stories don't get told unless we pass it down orally like this, you know? Incredible. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think even for me thinking about like the second question, Jaya, 
Um, similarly, I think my, um, my, my maternal grandmother who is, who has since passed, um, I have an affinity for like fabric and clothing and all my, every memory I have of her is her stitching. And I think, um, and then I've recently found out that like my paternal great grandmother also like had a ton of stitching and sewing. And part of that probably was just that the time and generation, but even seeing how there's this, like, there's an actual thread within my family of this love of like fabric and clothing and um, how it feels even generational and those things survive. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I just see this comment about Pudetige, um, referred to soldiers too. Uh, yes, it is actually, um, they, it has like, it is the weirdest stew. I don't know if you have, but it, uh, it's not my favorite, I'll be honest, but it is, my husband loves it. Um, it's just like everything Korean and all the rations that are from like a soldier, like so spam and canned beans all go into this like thing and they make this um, soup from it. Uh, yeah. Well, um, in closing, I would love to take communion together. I know that if you were meeting in person at open table, you would be having meal together as a practice of communion, um, coming to the table to connect with Christ and with one another. And the table is an important symbol for us in my community as well at Anchor City. And um, one of the things that we actually really love to do is we love to eat together. And we've been lamenting that um, we haven't been able to share a meal together all of these long months. And so I wanna invite you, everyone to the table today. Um, and um, I wanna invite you here because it's a table that connects us. Uh, my sharing today is ultimately a story of connection, right? It's a connection to God, a connection to myself, a connection to others. And this communion table does the same thing. So whatever elements you have, um, some form of cracker or bread or what it is, or, um, and some, something, I guess the way that we often say is something wet. <laughs> um, so a juice or something, um, that would be great. And then I will uh, just offer some words for it. The table of bread and wine or whatever you brought is now to be made ready. It is the table of company with Jesus and all who love him. It is the table of sharing with the poor of the world with whom Jesus identified himself. It is the table of communion with the earth in which Christ became incarnate. So come to the table, you who have much faith and you who would like to have more. You who have been here often and you who have not been for a while, come. It is Christ who invites us to meet him here. We remember the way that Jesus showed us his love on the evening before he died. He had supper with his friends and during the meal, he took the loaf and after giving thanks for it, he broke it and he passed it around to his friends saying, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup of wine and he gave thanks for it. And then he passed it around with these words. This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink of this cup, remember me. And now every time we eat bread like this and every time we drink wine like this, we remember Jesus and his everlasting love. Let us pray. We give thanks for this bread, fruit of the earth and hard work, a gift of the grace of God. We break it and share it 
remembering the words and actions, gestures and glances, silences and self-offered life of the teacher from Nazareth. And we give thanks for the fruit of the vine, for the joy of communion, for alliances that endure and the search for justice and wholeness. We take the cup knowing we are a part of community people renewing its covenant with life. Amen. My new friends, the gifts of God for the people of God, take and eat. Amen.